The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 to 34 and 44 to 52. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it has the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds can come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. They then sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but they threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Bill. And uh, thank you, Tom, for that earlier introduction to me and my trousers. <coughs> and I think um, I haven't done a bad job of um, color coordinating with the flowers, but I think I clash with the carpet. But, uh, but never mind. Well, this talk continues our series of scriptures that inspire me. And it's Matthew 13 that has held my attention this summer. I've been enthused afresh about the kingdom of God. I don't know if this has anything to do with advancing age and the absolute certainty that I have lived longer than I have to live. But the kingdom of God has gripped me. This is the place God meant for us to be from the dawn of time and the place he has prepared for us eternally all who submit in repentance and worship to our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. In a few years' time, most likely no more than 30, I will meet Jesus face to face. Perhaps it will be tomorrow. Perhaps next week. Whenever it is, it will be soon. I'm going to see him as he is. 
I'm going to be transformed in his presence. And I'm going to have the opportunity to kneel before him and thank him personally for my eternal salvation and, for the, and that of many of my friends and family. How exciting is that? I've had some real excitement in my life through 31 enthralling and at times challenging years on operations and training in the army, through participation in sport, through a loving family, great friends, gorgeous places, wonderful music and wonderful events. But nothing, nothing can compare with meeting Jesus. I can't wait. I begin to understand what Paul meant when he said to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want to see him. I want to meet him. As we know from our Bibles, our citizenship in the kingdom of God starts the moment we ask Jesus to save us. The wonderful truth is that we are all invited to become its citizens through his death and resurrection. There is no other means of entry into this kingdom. No other passport, visa or ticket. No alternative claim to allegiance, citizenship, race or creed that can qualify us. You sometimes hear people say, Jesus is a crutch. Christianity is a crutch for the weak. Have you heard that? Well, there's a good answer to that somewhat dismissive suggestion. To use a similar metaphor, no, he is not. Jesus is not a crutch. Jesus is a stretcher because you cannot even limp into the kingdom of God without Jesus. And Jesus spoke mostly about the gospel of the kingdom rather than specifically about a gospel of salvation. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus was very clear of the importance of personal salvation, of being born again, as he said to Nicodemus. But personal salvation is not where it ends. It is a means, the transport, the passport to enter Christ's kingdom. It is one element of God's larger plan to reveal himself to his creation and to reestablish all things as he originally created and ordained them. Jesus makes this very clear in his teaching about the kingdom of God in the parables of Matthew 13. Here we have seven parables, of which we have just heard five read to us. This centerpiece of Jesus' teaching comes as the opposition to him hots up. Jesus has been preaching the good news of the kingdom teaching in the synagogues and healing every kind of disease, but has noted that the people seem to be like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew chapter 10, he sends out the disciples to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers and cast out demons. And he warns about the opposition and suffering that inevitably comes with following him. He has told them that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And he has both encountered and denounced the stiff opposition of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, the seven parables that Matthew gathers together are these. The parable of the sower, 
perhaps one of the best known of Jesus' parables, the weeds, the mustard seed and the yeast, the hidden treasure and the pearl, and the net or the dragnet, which was the main device for fishing in northern Galilee. And I love studying the parables. They're straightforward, challenging, and they also go deep the more one reflects on them. They're mostly simple illustrations from day-to-day life or stories to which Jesus' audience can immediately relate. And he uses both types of these in Matthew 13. So what can we learn about the kingdom of God from these parables? Many things. But in the time we have, here are four. The first and most important thing is that Jesus is saviour, king and judge. He said that he is the way, the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but by him. Peter said to the council of the elders and scribes in Acts chapter 4 that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by whom we must be saved. No other name, no other person, No other God. Salvation is in Christ alone. He is the king of this kingdom. He created it and God has ordained that he will reign over it forever. He is also the judge. He will judge the nations and the sin of every man and woman. And we can only escape his right and just judgment And have our sin forgiven by coming to him in faith while we are alive. He is the sower in the parable of the sower. And the one who orders the end time reaping in the parable of the weeds. And by extension the parable of the net. He is the one who has by his precious blood redeemed the kingdom. Represented by the field in this chapter. Which has cost him everything. Second, not many will respond positively to the message of the kingdom. Only part of the soil in the parable of the sower produces any grain at all. The word of God will cause division amongst those who hear it. Jesus' family, who he identifies in chapter 12 as those who do his father's will, receive the word, understand it, and live it out obediently. Others fail to listen because of a hard heart, like seeds scattered on the path, a basic superficiality, seed sown in shallow soil, or a vested interest in wealth and possessions, the seed among the thorns. Jesus says that the gospel will be rejected by the majority. He's already denounced the unrepentant Galilean towns of Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum in chapter 11 and strongly attacked the unbelieving religious leaders of Israel in chapter 12. Yet despite opposition and rejection, there will be a harvest and a significant one. The kingdom starts small, like the mustard seed and the yeast, but grows supernaturally in size and reach the extensive growth of the kingdom. From the smallest possible beginnings, just Jesus 
and his disciples to the huge shady tree promised in Ezekiel chapter 17, the worldwide church. And the kingdom grows in spirituality and power, the intensive growth of the kingdom, the powerful action of the yeast in the bread, most obviously fulfilled at Pentecost, and today, wherever men and women are filled with the Holy Spirit. This tiny seed sown in Galilee, somewhere around AD 28, is today an enormous tree in whose shelter everyone in the world may find rest. In Jesus' day, a farmer's expectation would be for a harvest return of about 10% of the grain sown. Here, Jesus is talking about about a return of 30 or 60 or 100%. That's a bumper crop, as my father-in-law's went to say of his blackberry bushes. So let's be encouraged that the faithful proclamation of the gospel will always bring a significant harvest in the lives of those who believe. And as Tim told us last week, the spiritual goods of the kingdom and that harvest should and will impact the world. And I've seen this in practice in Military Ministries International during this lockdown. MMI, the charity I have the privilege of running and of which this church is a very generous supporter. And here are some examples. We have a friend in Tunisia who I will call David. I won't use his real name because there's a great risk uh, to his life for being a Christian. David used to be in the Tunisian Navy, and one day he was jailed because of his Christian faith. When he got out, one of our supporters sympathized with him and said to him that it must have been awful. Oh no, David replied. Before I went to prison, I could only reach reach a few for the Lord. In prison, I could reach thousands. We've got to know a pastor in Lebanon who has soldiers in his church. Uh, When we first met him, he had 10. Now he has 22. And we're excited about this kingdom growth. Another pastor in Lebanon, who used to be a curate at Holy Trinity Brompton, is running Alpha in the Levant. And as a result of networking with him during lockdown, he's going to lead an Alpha course in Arabic for military people in the Middle East. A senior Peshmerga officer in northern Iraq, holds a regular Bible study for 12 members of his military unit, most of whom are not Christians. And we've seen a network of believers, believing friends grow in Africa. We're enjoying regular Zoom prayer meeting with our brothers, uh, our French-speaking brothers in countries like Benin and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, in Senegal and Niger and Mali and with our Portuguese-speaking brothers and sisters in Mozambique and Angola, elsewhere with Russians and Azeris, with Croats and Romanians and Bolts and Finns and Germans and Austrians and Italians and Indians and Nepali and Sri Lankans. Amazing growth of fellowship, Bible study and prayer online over the last 18 months. Spiritual growth too, as we marvel at our friends in Palestine willing to pray online with Messianic Jews associated with the Israeli Defence Force, members of the Russian Military Christian Fellowship praying with their Ukrainian brothers 
Azeris praying with Armenians, the Indian military Christians who see themselves as the tip of the spear for evangelism to their nation despite persecution. Some of my favorite moments over the last few months have been prayer times when I haven't understood a single word, or potentially just a few. Praying with people in their own languages, often four or more languages in the same meeting, is precious and exciting. Arabic, French, Portuguese, Polish, Russian, you name it. It's a taste of heaven. It's a taste of the kingdom of God. So I absolutely understand these two parables of the mustard seed and the yeast because I am seeing the truth of that day by day. And this is what we can look forward to in this community. This physical and spiritual growth is not a thing of chance. They are evidence of the kingdom. This growth happens where Jesus is Lord and where the seeds of the gospel are sown. So we should expect to see growth. And not miserable growth, but 30, 60, or 100-fold of what is sown. Third, Jesus is clear in the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl that if we really want to inhabit his kingdom, it will cost us everything. But there is incredible joy in giving him our all, as experienced by the characters in those two stories. In the first... The hidden treasure is stumbled upon by chance. I wasn't looking for God in 1979 when he found me. I was enjoying my teenage years where lots of sport, friends and beer was the order of the day. But when I was confronted by irrefutable evidence of the person and power of Jesus, that was my hidden treasure moment. By the same token, I'm reading a book called Cold Case Christianity uh, by someone who can only be an American, J. Warner Wallace, who is, as it happens, a homicide detective and was an atheist. Beginning with the assumption that the supernatural is impossible, he set out to use his cold case or unsolved murder investigative tools and techniques to establish whether Jesus was the Son of God or not. His conclusion, after forensically assessing all the evidence available, was that he is who he claims to be, and he became a follower as a result. He is like that merchant in the story, searching patiently for the pearl of great price for which he is prepared to give everything. These simple parables are clear in their punchy conclusion. Whether you encounter the kingdom by accident or by design, the implications of becoming a child of God are the same. It is Jesus first, and it is in his kingdom where we must lay up our treasure, not on this earth. And isn't it great today to stand with Lily's and Leo's families as they lay up treasure for themselves in heaven? Fourth, we note that during its growth, those outside the kingdom, who Jesus calls the wicked, including false brethren inside the church, are permitted to grow alongside the good, as the parable of the weeds makes clear. Like Darnell, a wheat-like weed, 
They even often resemble and nestle alongside citizens of the kingdom. It's instructive that two of the parables in Matthew 13, the weeds and the net, deal with the end of the age. But they're not a pair. Whilst it is clear in both that there is a day of judgment coming for the wicked, in the parable of the weeds, there is at least as much emphasis on the caution the farmer, Jesus, gives to the workers, us, not to be premature in trying to pull the weeds up. To do so is also to damage the wheat. We're reminded that the Lord is judge, not us. If these weeds look like wheat, how can we be sure what we're pulling up? God knows those who are his and those who are not. And he, in his love and mercy and judgment, is best placed and equipped to make that decision at the appointed time. This parable urges God's people to be patient, to focus on the kingdom business of spreading the gospel and showing the love of Christ to our neighbors. And as Tim said last week, we are not to judge each other. The parable of the net re-emphasizes that our role is not to judge, but to be fishers of men, to be involved with spreading the gospel to as many people as we can, to all the fish in the net. It is Jesus who judges. And as the parable states, that judgment is a heavenly and entirely just business which he oversees. Both parables could not be clearer about the day of judgment that is certain to come when we will all go to our eternal destiny. Those who have loved God and submitted to Jesus to eternal life, rest and joy. Those who have rejected him to hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is no biblical alternative destination for us. It is heaven or hell, entirely dependent on how we have responded to Jesus and to his gospel. This is very black and white, not something our society likes these days. But we, are, we do our neighbors no good service by soft peddling the truth. To do so is as, uh, as illogical as failing to warn a canoeist of an impending deadly waterfall ahead of him because we might upset him. So at the end of the age, the king, the judge, the conquering one, but the lover of men will come and will separate the righteous, the wheat, the good fish in the net from the unrighteous the weeds, the bad fish, rewarding eternally the former and punishing eternally the latter. No other end is ordained, but in his love and mercy, Jesus has given us this life to reckon ourselves, ourselves to him. And King Jesus will restore all things and extending the imagery of Matthew chapter 13, restore the field the kingdom, to its former glory for eternity. So as we conclude, let's get excited about this kingdom. It's here. It's now. I see it in you. 
Let's grasp the reality that we are going to see Jesus and order our lives accordingly. Let's give him our all. Everything I am for your kingdom's sake, in the words of the song we sometimes sing. Let's sow the word, spread the good news, fish for men. And as we do, let's expect a harvest growth of 30, 60 or 100 fold. Let's not dodge the hard truth that judgment of sin is coming. But let's remember there is a gracious escape route provided by Jesus. The bad news of judgment is trumped by the good news of salvation. And if there is anyone listening to this who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, take a leaf out of the Pearl Merchant's book or that cold case detective's book and search diligently. Ask Jesus to reveal himself to you and on finding him, submit to him. Praise God for his extraordinary plan in which we've been invited to citizenship in his kingdom, now on this earth and when he comes again in power to reign as inhabitants of a new earth, restored forever to the beauty he originally intended. Amen.